morning, everybody. How are we all? Tired. That was my wife. <laughs> um, it's lovely to be here with you. If you don't have any idea who I am, I'm the new vicar here. Uh, I've been here three weeks so far. My name's Ben. It's lovely to see you. you. This could be your first week. I would probably have absolutely no idea. So feel free to say hello to me at the end, particularly if you're new here and we can be new together. Uh, before I speak, let me pray. Father God, as we look at this passage from Exodus, I pray that for each and every one of us here that you would speak to us. Amen. So, I'm a little bit fussy when it comes to drinks. Um, And by that, I mean I don't really like many drinks. I don't like tea. I don't like coffee. I don't like Coke. I don't like whiskey. I don't like lemonade. I don't like pretty much any cocktail. I don't like skinny pumpkin spice lattes. I I pretty much don't like a lot of drinks. It's probably easier to tell you what drinks I do like rather than what drinks I don't like. So the entire list of the drinks I do like are as follows. Water. Wow, there's a lot of enthusiasm for water in the room. Let's see where this list goes. Beer. Ooh, okay. Wine. Oh, a bit more for wine. Okay. Banana or vanilla milkshakes. That was, that was quite a hot chocolate. Uh, and certain fruit juices. Oh, that was very unenthusiastic. Um, that's the whole list of drinks I like. And now most of the time, this isn't really a problem because you can pretty much get water anywhere. However, at times, my refined and acquired palate proves to be a little bit problematic. So there's been more than one occasion when I've been at a restaurant or I've gone round to someone's house and they ask me, oh, do you want a drink? And I say, yes, I'd love a drink. What do you have? And they list a load of drinks and most of them I say, oh, I don't really like that one, sorry. Uh, But then they say, well, we have some orange juice. Now, orange juice is on my list of acceptable drinks. So I eagerly reply, either to the waiter or to the friend I've gone round to the house to, that I would love an orange juice. Now, they potter off for a couple of minutes and they come back with my orange juice. And on these occasions, they hand me the orange juice. Now, it looks like orange juice. It's maybe a little bit lighter in colour than what I was expecting, but it kind of looks like an orange juice. It smells kind of like orange juice, but when I take a sip, I immediately know that this is not orange juice. It is, in fact, orange squash. (sighs) I know. Now, to some people, this probably isn't a big deal, but to my sensitive taste buds, orange juice makes the cut. Orange squash definitely does not make the cut. But, because I'm British, I will sit there, I will drink the orange squash to the bottom, and I will smile the whole time. Now, I wonder what it is for you that you can't stand an imitation of. 
Are you a Heinz-only baked beans or ketchup fan? Are you an only Apple product hipster? Can you stand fake sellotape? Uh, what tea bags are the best tea bags? Well, there's a lot of Yorkshire fans in the room. Uh, does supermarket cola hit the spot? Does anyone like KFC fries? No, no, great. Uh, does your maybe does your cat only eat Felix? Uh, what loo roll are you prepared to put your bum through? I suspect we all have maybe something in our life that we can only really manage the real thing. And the knockoff imitation just doesn't really cut it. It might look the same, smell the same, feel the same, but it just doesn't quite hit the same spot. Now, before we get to the passage today, we're going to have a quick recap of how we got to the situation of Moses and Aaron throwing a staff in front of Pharaoh. And when I say a quick recap, we're going to start from the beginning. So, in the beginning, God creates, and I'm not even joking here, in the beginning, God creates the worlds. And so we have Adam and Eve. Everyone remember Adam and Eve? Great. They eat an apple. Snake tells them to eat an apple. They eat an apple. It's not a great situation. And the harmony between God and his creation, that's what happened there, creation is broken and death, evil and sin enter the world. Yet God doesn't abandon his creation. Instead, he starts again by choosing one family line through which he will bring the whole world back to himself. And that family line starts with a man called Abraham. Now, Abraham, he has some children who have some children, who have some children, and one of them is called Joseph. Now, people might know Joseph from Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. Has anyone seen Joseph at the theatre? Few people, great. That was a good good side point. Uh, So, Joseph gets sold into Egypt by his brothers, uh, but in Egypt, he becomes this really powerful figure. Now, there is a famine at that time, and after a bit of toing and froing, Abraham's grandson, which is also Joseph's dad, and all his children end up moving to Egypt. And over the next few years, they have children who have children who have children who have children. And this family gets pretty big and pretty powerful. Now, this scares the Egyptians because they're worried with all these these people around, with all these Israelites, with this big family, what happens if there's a war, they might turn against us. This is pretty scary. So the whole family are made into slaves and they are forced to work. Now, quite obviously, the Israelites aren't really happy building pyramids all day. And so they cry out to God and God chooses Moses to help set this big family free. Now, Moses isn't a perfect person. Moses has killed someone. Uh, Moses is a little bit scared. Moses has a stammer and and he's not that confident. So his brother Aaron comes along with him for the ride and they all have a meeting with Pharaoh. Now, Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron in their first meeting with Pharaoh, well, it doesn't go so well. They ask Pharaoh, can we have three days worshipping out in the desert? Pharaoh says, No. And he says, because you even had the cheek to ask me, 
we're going to make you work really, really hard. So the big family get pretty angry with Moses and Aaron and they complain, look, you've only made things worse. You tried to help, but you were useless. But Moses tells them that God is going to set them free from slavery. He's going to bring them out of Egypt and he's going to give them their own land, a place to call home. And the passage we heard this morning is the next time that Moses and Aaron decide to go up and meet with Pharaoh again. Recap over. So in this passage, Pharaoh asks Moses and Aaron to perform a miracle. So Aaron throws his staff down in front of Pharaoh and it turns into a snake. I don't know about you. Is anyone scared of snakes here? One person in this whole church. No, oh, there's a few hidden hands. Okay, so I think it would be pretty impressive to turn a staff into a snake, but also a little bit scary. But Pharaoh, you know, he's not convinced by any of it. And he's not convinced by this God that the Israelites say they follow. So he asks some of his wise men, his sorcerers and his magicians to perform the same miracle. And whether through some dark spiritual means or through some sort of illusion, they also manage to turn their staffs into snakes. Aaron's snake swallows up their snakes, but by this point, Pharaoh is just not impressed. If the Israelites' gods can be copied, then why should Pharaoh listen to him? So Pharaoh says, well, it's back to slavery for you. I'm going to ignore everything you say. I'm not going to listen to this God, and they have to go back. Anything your gods can do, well, my God can also do. This is a story about sparring rival gods. The Israelite had their gods called Yahweh, and Pharaoh had many, many other gods. In the ten plagues that follow this passage, Yahweh shows his power, and Pharaoh ignores the obvious conclusion that Yahweh is the God of gods, that he's in charge, that he is all-powerful. Yet even in this story, it is Moses' snake that swallows all the other snakes. The word swallow is the Hebrew word bala, and it's used two times in the book of Exodus. The first is here, where the snakes swallow the other snakes. And the second is when the Egyptians, even after experiencing the ten plagues, chase the Israelites through the sea and get swallowed by the water. God keeps proving to Pharaoh that he is the only God and he is more powerful than any other God. Yet Pharaoh will not listen. He will not see, hear, understand or recognise. He just stubbornly dismisses God in the face of the mounting evidence. In this story, Pharaoh's gods look the same, smell the same, feel the same. But in the end, they aren't God. They are just weak imitations. I think most of us are searching for something in this life. Some of these things are probably happiness, peace, purpose, love, fulfillment, comfort, safety, self-confidence. The list could go on and on. Deep down, we all want to be happy. We all want to feel loved and to love someone else. 
We all want a sense of purpose in our lives that drives what we do and who we are. We all want to feel safe. We all want a deep inner sense of peace. Not like we're being thrown around by life's waves, but that we are calm and steady no matter the height of the waves around us. We all want to feel confident in our own skin and with the person we are. We all want life to be comfortable, not having to worry and stress every single day. We all want to live a life that when we get to the end, we can say, I lived it the best I could. I made the best out of whatever cards I was dealt. I wonder how many of our lives are marked by happiness, peace, purpose, love, fulfilment, comfort, safety, self-confidence, or any other attributes we would like to add. I suspect that maybe for many of us, there'll be elements of some of those things at some times, but our life may instead be marked by fear, self-loathing, stress, pain, addiction, discontentment, aimlessness, the daily grind, anxiety, helplessness, poverty in any of its forms, hatred, and other attributes we would rather not feel or experience. In this life, there are the deep down things we would like, and then there are the things we live with. There are these attributes that we want, and there are these attributes that we have. We want to feel loved and to love someone, but instead we feel unloved, unheard, unwanted, and we can't trust our heart to anyone else. We want to have a sense of purpose, but our only purpose at the moment is surviving another day. We want to like ourselves, but instead we just can't stop hating ourselves. We want to feel a deep sense of peace, but instead we always feel restless not able to sit down for more than a minute with our own thoughts. For many of us, there is a great divide between what we had hoped this life would be and what it turned out to be. And because of this, we search for happiness, peace, purpose, love, fulfilment, comfort, safety, self-confidence. We are endless wanderers listening to directions from anyone else. Within this world there are plenty of signposts to happiness. There are plenty of people who will tell you what makes a happy life. There are limitless Instagram pictures showing what a happy life really looks like. There are plenty of things we chase after, give our lives to, follow wholeheartedly, in some sense worship to try to find these deep things we are after. These gods of happiness, peace, purpose, love, fulfilment, comfort, safety, self-confidence, or any of the other things we chase. They might look the same, might smell the same, might feel the same, but in the end they just turn out to be weak imitations. They are simply orange squash. The world says that money will make you happy. The actor Jim Carrey from 
famously from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, great film. The actor Jim Carrey said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. The signposts of our culture will say that peace is found when everything around you is sorted and there is nothing to worry about. Yet that belief is like chasing a rainbow. You will never reach the end. Our upbringing might tell us that our purpose is found in our job. Do well. Progress. Get promoted. Become powerful. Yet power and status don't give meaning to this life. Many have become conditioned to think that porn will give a glimpse of love and intimacy, and yet they are left feeling lonely. We've been led to believe that safety comes from having a mortgage-free house, a good pension and becoming self-sufficient, with enough safety nets around us. Yet cancer has never cared about anyone's health insurance or safety nets. We are convinced that to become self-confident, we just have to change that one little bit of our body. But people often find that this becomes an endless cycle of self-hatred. Within this world, there are many imitator gods. Many Many voices telling us where to find what we all want. Many signposts telling us what we should give our life to. Yet just like the snakes in this passage, they may look and taste similar. They may give us a glimpse, but they're just not the real thing. They are not God. It is God that can give a person happiness despite them having nothing. It is God that can provide peace amongst the biggest of storms. It is God who can give our life purpose beyond ourselves. It is God who shows us every single day that he loves us and that he wants us. It is living for and with God that when we come to the end, we can look back and say, I lived my best life. It is God who provides comfort in the discomfort. It is God who is the only eternal safety net. It is God who keeps telling us, you are enough. You are enough. Our deepest wants, desires and hopes are not met by ourselves. They are met in, through and by God. We find ourselves when we find God. We can spend our whole lifetime chasing after imitator gods. Or we can spend our lifetime with God. One will lead to disappointment. The other to life. The gods we listen to and we follow, well, that's up to us. But don't chase gods that, just like orange squash, overpromise and massively underdeliver. <coughs> Pharaoh became so convinced he knew who the gods were and what they looked like that he couldn't see God right in front of him. The passage says that he had a hard heart. Now that could mean a few things, but I think Pharaoh was confident that he understood and could recognise a God. And when God didn't fit into his box, he just couldn't see him. Last week, Tab spoke about the disciples not being able to recognise Jesus. And in the same way this week, 
Pharaoh couldn't recognise God. You see, God cannot be put into a box. He cannot be moulded to our own ideas. He cannot look like we want him to look. He cannot be controlled. God is God. And in my opinion, churches are notorious for putting God in a box. For saying that God only acts this way. God only likes this type of music. God only responds to this type of service. God doesn't care about this, but God really actually cares about that. As a group of people, we ever so easily put God in a box and then covertly or overtly preach and preserve that box. We hark back to a time when God did something and we think that by not changing anything and turning the church into a museum, this is what will save the church. We instinctively feel that God really just cares about survival, his memory living on, a box deity to be preserved and learnt about, like all those Egyptian gods that Pharaoh worshipped and now are behind glass cabinets where school kids just do projects about. The church in this country is in danger of creating an imitation of God, that does not represent the unboxed God who rose from the dead and is alive. The church in this country is in danger of becoming a museum, where a small few are strongly and resolutely determined to protect its legacy, but most think it's just irrelevant. The church in this country is in danger of not recognising God and chasing after weak imitator gods. The church's safety and future is not found in familiarity or comfort. It is found in following Jesus. The Jesus who is alive. The Jesus who is working in our world. The Jesus who is changing his song to harmonise with this world's song. For too long the church has been singing out of tune with both our world and with Jesus. The world has moved. Jesus has moved, the church has stayed stagnant, but often insists that Jesus is still in the box that maybe he left long, long ago. The biggest danger for the church in this country is not change, it is staying the same. It is putting God in a box and not recognise that God cannot be put in a box. It is not realising that God is already at work in Southport, and invites us to join in with the new things he is doing, creating, restoring and loving. Pharaoh became stubborn and hard to the God that was in front of him because God didn't fit in his box. May we, as a church, never become so rigid that we miss the God who is right in front of us. May we never become so scared that we turn church into a museum. And may we never settle for a cheap imitation of God. Let me pray.